Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, June 1st. You know what that means. New picks, new racks. Right, right. I, I, I remember that now, yeah. Yeah, so go check them out. Use our code CCM for 7investing. You get $10 off. And uh, remember, the prices are going up next month. Am I getting yeah. that right? Yeah, they're going up in July. Check out their website for more details. You can talk to anyone. They'll give you all the full information if you're confused at all. But if you want this cheaper price now, you get, get it you, while you, you can. Get it while you can in June. Either way, you get $10 off your first month or $10 off your first year. Amazing team over there. You know, great addition to your research process. And today we have an interview with Rick Munares. Uh, I think I'm saying that right. Yep. I always suck with names. It's kind another of a recurring theme here. Another Miami investor that That's we get to right. add to our uh, repertoire. The, the growing <laughs> city, as everyone on Twitter says. You know, he's got to be there. What uh, What were your big takeaways from the interview? Yeah, so it was fun to talk Roku and Fubo. Those are two kind of big streaming companies that people have different opinions on some people really love those companies some people don't really get it it was interesting to get his thoughts he was he's very knowledgeable about the you know streaming and media industry so yeah. it was fun to ask him questions about that and then afterward we got our typical stories for the week but without further ado here we go welcome to chit chat money on this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, today we are welcomed by Rick Munares. Uh, we actually just tried, just uh, just did about 10 or 20 minutes of an interview and our computer crashed. So this is round two. Take uh, two, it's okay. That's all right. Uh, but Rick is a senior analyst at The Motley Fool. He's been there for a long time. Uh, I believe one of the earlier employees, earliest maybe. Um, so how did you end up there? Kind of how did you get your start at The Motley Fool? Yeah, it was in 1995 is when I started, basically two years after the, the, Tom, Dave, and, and Eric Rideholm started it as a, as a, as a newsletter, uh, basically out of, out, of, out of the garage, uh, out of a shed, actually, that they did. Uh, so uh, at the time, I was already in the online investing scene, so to speak. Uh, there was a service put up by General Electric called Genie, uh, which was their attempt sort of at a, at a CompuServe kind of service. And then Prodigy came out with a better interface. Then America Online came out with an even better interface. And I was the co-sysop of the investors roundtable on the Genie service. So I saw it and it was a very small service. It was very limited, very, it was all ASCII. So it was just text-based, uh, not a very intuitive uh, uh, platform. Uh, so I was happy when I saw Prodigy come out. And then I was really excited when America Online came on the scene. So I wanted to see what was going on there just in case if something would happen to Genie. And I happened to see the regular vanilla investors roundtable, which is decent enough on America Online. But then I stumbled into the Motley Fool, which is where all the cool investors seem to be grabbing gravitating to because here, here were these guys, anti-establishment, uh, uh, putting out advice to stocks that actually like 
research that no one else was really looking at, a very active online community. And I became an active part on that. And as fate would happen, I, I had, uh, there was, they had a post of the day award that they gave. And I happened to win two within a span of a week, one on Discovery Zone and the other on Rainforest Cafe, two companies that uh, uh, one business doesn't exist anymore. And the other is part of a larger uh, Landry's Restaurants companies now. Uh, but at the time they were like up and coming, uh, you know, well, not so much Discovery Zone, uh, uh, but Rainforest Cafe was an up and coming investment back in the themed restaurant space. And it got the attention of Tom Gardner, who reached out to me and said, hey, uh, you look like you know restaurants. We need someone uh, to cover the restaurant stocks. We're doing something called industry focus. We're getting industry-specific people to cover these markets, and we think you'd be a good fit for this. And I said, sure, absolutely. So I became MF Edible, then TMF Edible. Now I'm just TMF Breaker Rick because of the Motley Fool Rule Breaker service that I've been part of. But that evolved into eventually um, a couple years, like two years into it, a rainforest cafe was opening. I'm in Miami, Florida, and a rainforest cafe was opening right here in Orlando, Florida. Uh, so I invited uh, 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 Tom Gardner. Said, "Hey, uh, you know, uh, you probably don't want to come, but I mean, they have this opening here. Uh, it's going to be quite an event. Um, Lyle Berman from Grand Casino is going to be there. Donald Trump was there long before uh, you know he had aspirations uh, when he was just a celebrity at that point. Um, he was there uh, uh, and." And I said, hey, do you want to come down? And then uh, Tom said, hey, you know, I can't do it, but my brother will. Uh, and I was surprised because I had never met David Gardner. I mean, even informally talking or anything. And then he showed up and we spent uh, and along with Paul Larson, uh, who is uh, the, the, the cover of the casinos for Industry Focus. Now he's an Invesco uh, fund manager at Invesco Funds. And the three of us really hit it off. And I think uh, David Gardner and I connected that we saw we had a lot in common investing style. And um, he had all the stuff, the right thing, everything that drew me to the Motley Fool a couple years earlier, uh, uh, on, on, you know, as far as on AOL, um, I saw it right there. I mean, I saw it, I, I got really excited just being in the same room with him. Everything he said just made so much sense to me. Uh, so, and he, as time went on, every time there was a new project, he would suggest me to do it. And then when he launched Motley Fool Rule Breakers in 2004, he made sure that I was part of the original launch team uh, with two or three other analysts uh, that launched it along with him. So I've been with the Motley Fool ever since. Uh, uh, 25,000 bylines on the fool.com free side, and I've been part of the Motley Fool Rule Breaker service uh, now 17 years. So it, it's, it's been an amazing journey. And uh, what I'm familiar with Rainforest Cafe, but what was Discovery Zone? Discovery Zone again. It was it was it was a, it was a, it was a it was a Florida company, sort of like by Wayne Hyzenga, who did Blockbuster and Waste Management, okay. and they were let's say Chuck E. Cheese, um, but without the animatronics. It was basically like these big playgrounds with bounce houses and stuff like that, uh, and it was really popular with young kids back basically in the '90s. But they were uh, they they went bankrupt in the late 1990s. So it was, the post was actually how to save Discovery Zone. So it was just kind of like this long thesis on how I would rescue a, a Discovery Zone, and obviously. It didn't work. Uh, not that anyone heeded it. It was it was unsavable at that point. But yeah, that was Discovery Zone. All right. And then, you know, you've been at the Molly Fool for a while. How, I guess, has Mo the Molly Fool evolved over the years? And how has it helped you evolve your investing style? Yeah, I mean, I think the Motley Fool has evolved. Uh, and in the early days, um, you know, we were basically, it was this anti-establishment, not in a bad way, uh, but more or less saying like, you know, money managers are only out to do one thing. And, and you know, who wants these high-end mutual funds? Just buy a Vanguard index fund if you want mutual fund exposure. Pick your own stocks, you know, create your own destiny. A lot of that is still in place, but obviously we are covering a lot of ground these days. We have stuff on options, on real estate, uh, on credit cards. We have a lot of different areas within the Motley Fool these days. So that has evolved 
out of, out, of, out of need just because you have to cover all the bases as you grow. Uh, but we are still picking these dynamic growth stocks. Back in the 90s, it was the iOmegas, uh, you know, the Amazons, uh, .coms of the world. Um, now they're just equally dynamic with the Shopify's and the Mercado Libres. So there, there's plenty of dynamic growth stocks that fit into that Motley Fool, the, the David Gardner mindset of these rule breaker kind of companies that are still alive and still continue to happen. So that hasn't changed. But obviously, we've become a much larger company as far as scope and reach and all the other things. How's it helped you kind of evolve as an investor? Yeah, it, it definitely. I mean, and, and again, I mean, it's I early on, I wasn't so much an investor. I mean, I was like, uh, my my story basically was I had my my I went to the University of Miami, so I was. I wasn't born in Miami. I was born in New Jersey, but I've been in Miami since I was five. And I went to the University of Miami and I had a band that was signed to Columbia Records. And uh, um, you've never heard of us. So don't you can look up Paris by Air. We are on Spotify and Apple uh, iTunes. But, you know, we're not, you'll, you'll see you're like maybe 400 monthly listeners. So uh, don't necessarily follow it. This was 1980s electronica and new wave music. It's probably not your cup of tea. Our producer was Louis Martinet, who did Expose and, and Pet Shop Boys and a lot of, uh, you know, the Miami dance scene stuff. But in, in the 80s, we were actually in, I'm sorry, in, in, yeah, in, the, in the late 80s, 1980s. We were signed in 87 to Columbia and I had graduated at 1988 and I didn't know what to do. Um, I didn't want to just say, all right, I'm done. Uh, I'm going to just, you know, just give it all to music because that would be silly. But I also didn't want to give up music and say, I'm just going to go to the workforce. So I was able to get a graduate assistantship, which means that I got my MBA for free and got paid. Uh, I just helped the professors with research and stuff like that. So uh, right. and getting my MBA, I bought myself more time. And then I still wasn't famous at the end of the MBA at the, in 1990. So I had a lot of free time on my hands. Uh, and that is when I started just saying, all right, I have an MBA. I can put that to work in the market. So I started investing. Uh, um, then uh, the minimal, the tiny means that I had at the time, obviously the, I wasn't making money on the music side and I wasn't putting my MBA to good use because I still wanted to be going to the recording studio every couple of weeks, uh, once, once or twice a week rather to record. I had to be flexible. And that's why the online services appealed to me just as a place to explore and expand and become a better investor. But yeah, as an investor, I've evolved since then, since the time I first met uh, David Gardner. I'm no longer as concerned like I was in the old days. I think a lot of new investors, they come in and go, well, what's the price earnings multiple? Um, what's it going to be? Or, hey, there's no dividend here. What's going to happen here? Oh, this company reported a loss. Uh, you know, oh, what? So it, it's there, you've, you become to forgive a lot of the initial instincts that what you learn is like good investing practices. And you realize that valuation, while important, it's not so much about valuation now, it's valuation for what a company is able to do three, five, seven, ten 10 years from now, which is why I don't mind paying. Uh, uh, you know, I can't even tell you the revenue to, 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 to market cap multiple of some of the stocks I own uh, because I'm looking beyond that. I'm looking at how large the companies will be in general uh, if they succeed and exceed expectations, which is what the market is pricing them now before at. Right. And we're going to hit a few individual companies. One industry that you cover, I think a lot on fool.com is streaming video and all the different companies associated with that. And a big one is Roku. So I guess we have a few, we had a few questions on the first part, uh, but I think we could maybe start out now. What's the thesis with Roku? Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if like you own it or anything, but you know, why can this business, I guess, grow over the next few years? Yeah, and, and I do own Roku personally. Uh, I've owned it thankfully since two, early two thousand eight. So I've, I've uh, twenty eighteen. Sorry. Uh, uh, so so I've done well with it. Uh, but to me, Roku is it is a mis it was a misunderstood company in the fact that it is a software plat it is a platform 
for watching TV. Uh, and it's something that in the early days, people looked at it more as kind of like hardware, like, oh, there's only these dongles and these uh, set-top devices that plug into your TV. Uh, you pay 20, 30, 50, 80 dollars uh, for a device so you can stream TV. But Roku is always about the platform, which is where the high margin revenue is, where they it's, it's, it's now in 38% of the smart TVs uh, being shipped in this country. Uh, it is now in more than 50 million homes. And these people that, that have Roku, we're not talking about 50 million individual people are talking about families. I mean, I have one Roku account, but it's consumed by everyone in my household. And we are spending hours on it. And the average Roku user is spending three and a half, four hours a day streaming through Roku. And that means basically, it's not that you're like watching Roku content. It means that you're firing up your TV. It just defaults to Roku. And there are ads there, of course, but you can just go right into Netflix, right into Prime, uh, Amazon Prime, right into Hulu, into, into YouTube TV, and into Fubo. So whatever TV service, uh, whatever you want to see, it's all there for you. But they control the gateway. And that means that when you're done watching, uh, they, can, uh, they can hit you with other ads. And more importantly, with a lot of these services, they have an ad sharing agreement with some of these services. Uh, they're also promoting services. So like if, you, if, you're, if you're firing up and there's this new service at launch and you're saying, why is, why is Roku so happy? Why are they promoting this new service I've never heard of? It's because they're getting paid to do it, obviously. It's advertising. So it, it, it's a model that I think has a lot of upside, um, even as a free service, uh, just as, as it grows, not only in its, its ability to grow its audience, which it will, not in its ability to grow in its, its kind of usage because three and a half, four hours is pretty amazing. You can't spend you know, you, 24 hours is too much. Uh, it's, yeah. it's it, you know, you can only go so high, uh, even though you can share the account with family and stuff like that. So it may be different number. But I do think that the, the potential here is for them to grow average revenue per user, uh, even above everything else. And of course, internationally, there's potential too. Uh, but right now it's doing well in its own market. Uh, there is a lot of upside still untapped there. I'm a, yeah, I'm a Roku user myself. And same here, same here. It's, uh, it's the good. layout's just intuitive. It's really easy. Um, I guess, where do you think, uh, the majority of that platform revenue growth is going to come from in the future. Do you think that's more ad-based or is it kind of like the take rate type stuff that you see with like Apple services? Yeah, I, th I think it's a combination of both. I mean, I, I think, you know, over the last year, we had a lot of services last year. Um, you know, in 20, late 2019, we had Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus. But then right after that, we had the Peacock, the HBO Max, uh, uh, the All Access, CBS All Access. Um, then now, I mean, CBS All Access, sorry, earlier this year became Paramount Plus. So you have a lot of services looking to get noticed. Um, and that's great news for Roku. Uh, so they can generate money either just by signing people up and getting a piece of that, like a little take of that, or they can also generate money just by becoming the hub of all these places and just sharing ad revenue with these platforms, especially the free services uh, that, that so that everybody wins. And I think, you know, Roku is a win-win for everybody at this point. Do you get, it's obviously had a pretty incredible run. The stock has, I believe. Uh, do you get worried at all with valuation concerns? I know we just talked about yeah. thinking about the business five to 10 years out. Uh, how do you think about that with Roku? Yeah, I mean, the stock's corrected a bit. I mean, obviously, it was one of the big pandemic plays um, when people said, oh, we're going to be at home. Uh, but oddly enough, I mean, Roku, it, and it, to me, it was always surprising because, I mean, I owned, I haven't the luck into owning a lot of the stocks that did really well in the pandemic before, you know, I was, I was, I 
wasn't even anticipating the pandemic uh, when I bought into Peloton. Uh, Zoom, I did buy sort of at the early days of the pandemic, but these stocks were all taken off. Netflix was doing really well because they had Tiger King right out of the pandemic, like the first yeah. couple of weeks of the pandemic. Boom, you know, oh my God, there's, there's this great wild show and everybody started talking about it. Um, obviously not in the real office, but virtually. Um, and Roku just pretty much was stagnant through the first six months of the year. Then it took off in the latter half of the year. I think once people realize that, hey, Roku is here to stay, it's a player. Uh, it is growing, it's expanding its, its average revenue per user. Uh, so yeah, I mean, as far as valuation goes, it, it, it's, it's not cheap, uh, but it wasn't cheap uh, a year ago. It wasn't cheap two years ago or three years ago. And I think that's the whole thing of putting beside the fact that um, you're telling me if, if, if Roku was a $1 billion company, would I still feel the same about it? No, I, I, th I think, I mean, there's, there's limits to what can happen, but I think Roku is not anywhere near its ceiling. I think we have yet to see what Roku can do uh, basically internationally, basically as it grows. I mean, right now they're generating an ad revenue is basically about less than $3 a month in ad revenue, which is actually a lot lower than even some of the services, some of the live TV streaming services that are available through Roku. So uh, there is upside everywhere you go, especially in this connected TV times where a lot of advertisers know that people are no longer watching ads. They're no longer watching linear television. You need to reach them while they are streaming services. So if you have a message, you have to go through Roku uh, to get these 50 plus million highly engaged viewers of TV. What do you think differentiates Roku? I'm just curious because you have the Fire Stick, the Apple TV, Chromecast. Chromecast. Why, why is Roku able to get 38% market share? Yeah. So again, I think it would help them out. And again, obviously it's hard these days because I know they've had disputes uh, with, with, with HBO Max and Peacocks before putting them on. They're, they're obviously in a, in a, in a tussle with, with YouTube TV right now. Um, but what's always separated them is the agnosticism. So um, it, it's the tech giants. You would think Roku can't compete against Apple, Amazon, and Alphabet's Google, like three of the four wealthiest companies on the planet. Um, and if Microsoft put out a stick, you know, it'd be four for four. Um, it, it, and it's, that's inevitable. Uh, but you see stuff when every time, there, there was a time early on in Roku when like Comcast was going to have their own streaming hub and Roku stock would take a hit. And you all you had to think was about, how is Comcast going to make a difference in this market? It has, people hate uh, their, their cable service. Um, how is this going to matter? But the same thing with big tech, uh, um, they're sort of looking out for their services. So if you want an Apple TV plus, if you have an Apple TV, they want you to go through their, through their iTunes uh, video ecosystem. They want you to go through Apple TV Plus. Uh, Amazon, of course, uh, f great company, of course. Uh, Fire TV, uh, uh, the Fire TV itself hasn't been that hot, uh, but it, it's, they're trying to funnel you into the Amazon Prime library or their own rental and streaming library. They have a lot of stuff they're trying to protect. And so they're basically butting heads with the other tech giants. So you see that happen a lot. Roku's pretty much said, oh, we have thousands of apps. I think it's like 5,000 or something that are actually accessible. You just don't realize it because the, you, you're, you only have so many channels that you pick on your home screen, but um, there are thousands of options uh, for your Roku. Uh, and I think that sets them apart. And that's why if you're a smart TV maker, uh, and I don't mean smart, smart TV maker, I just meant, well, you, yeah, if you're a smart, smart television maker, you're going to tell yourself, I want the Roku. I want to have the platform that I know is going to play nice with everybody. Because if I line up, if I make a deal with Google and, and, and with Chromecast, and then Google gets into a fight with, 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 with let's say, um, Amazon and Prime Video is no longer show, and these things are happening, you, you're stuck with 
with a dead TV. Um, I had one of the original Google, Google had a Google TV and I still have them looking at it. It's, it's, it's nobody uses it in my house. We just use it like, like to play video games on. Um, but it was just a Google TV. It was, I, I think I paid a thousand dollars for like a small size TV uh, that it just streamed and it was a terrible interface. Uh, but they didn't really get it the way Roku has. Roku has been there from the beginning, the very beginning uh, uh, of digital video recording. They've been a part of it. Uh, and that's why uh, the company's done so well. Do you think, so we're big uh, shareholders in Spotify. And one of the reasons, there's a few reasons, you know, uh, for our investment thesis, but one of the reasons is that they have the focus versus their competitors. Their number one priority is to win audio streaming and Apple and Google's, it's, you know, way down the list. Do you think that's one of the reasons Roku has the success? Because Apple could, frankly, you know, they're not uh, making that much revenue compared to say like a watch or AirPods or the phone. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think focus, I mean, again, a company like like Apple is so much money that they can throw more money behind the Apple TV than Roku could possibly right. spend uh, and not even blink uh, because they have the resources to do it. But yeah, focus wise is important. Uh, you mentioned Spotify. Uh, it, it, again, they've gotten to be so popular. It's all it's all audio. It's all focused on streaming. And it's it, they're pushing into content through podcasts, just as Roku is now with Roku Originals. Um, and you make these you know, these, these steps that are, that are logical uh, in expanding your ecosystem uh, as Spotify has, as Roku has, that it's very hard. And again, I mean, Spotify is another company that basically competes uh, with Apple uh, um, and, and other platforms, but it, it's a kind of, they can win. The little guy can win if they are there early, if they have, if they have a, a product that has a, like basically an established interface and they have the audience. Uh, and that's Spotify is almost like, also like the agnosticism uh, that you have with, 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 with Roku. They have it on the streaming audio side. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Do you have, you have another I have nothing more for Roku, so let's hit a quick ad break, and then we'll talk uh, some streaming services in the back half. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome back in. Uh, next, we're hitting some particular streaming services. Uh, the three I think we're talking about is uh, Disney, Netflix, Fubo, which is a more controversial one, I guess you could say. Uh, the first one... Uh, News kind of came out this week, and you are a Netflix shareholder, if I'm not mistaken, right? You told, yes. you told yes. the story of the, the uh, you've been a shareholder for a long time, but you still, you're still holding on to the position, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I've been an investor since 2002, and unfortunately, I've sold 98% of my shares in Netflix, T, uh, but it's, it's still my largest holding. That 2% is actually large enough to be my largest holding, so yes, still Netflix shareholder. That, yes. that's, what a, that's what a hundred bagger can do uh, to the portfolio. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so they, there's a rumor kind of that came out this week about uh, them possibly entering video games. Do you think that's uh, an avenue that Netflix should pursue? I know you've talked with Reed Hastings in the past, um, and he said that he wasn't interested in it. So what's your take? Do you think it's uh, an area they should go into? Yeah, I mean, I was able to interview Reed Hastings uh, way back in the past, back when, even before they were a streaming company, it was pretty much a DVD and Blu-ray uh, by mail with the Little Red Envelopes company. They still do that. To, like, I think 2 million subscribers still get it that way. Uh, but it's, 
at the time, uh, we'd ask them because, again, I mean, a lot of us in the Molly Floor are big fans of the video game market. And we just saw, hey, why aren't you renting video games? Uh, you know, my red box down the street, I can put, you know, I, I rent movies and video games. Blockbuster, I can pick up movies and video games. Why aren't you doing this? And he just said, no, we're just not going to lose focus. This is what we do. Um, we're going to be laser focused on what movies and entertainment and just delivering it as best possible to, to our consumers. And that evolved through, obviously, the digital streaming where they disrupted their own model, which I always love that when a company says, I know that this is our cash cow. We're the high margin company where we have dozens of distribution centers all around the country where we ship out these little red DVDs mailers uh, with discs in the day or two. You can have it after you order it. But they were willing to disrupt it by just giving streaming, the model that would eventually undo its original model. And you're seeing a lot of these big Hollywood companies doing the same thing right now doing what Netflix did and just burn your own boats uh, to make sure that you have to go forward. And uh, so I, I think with, with, with Netflix, um, it's, it's the kind of company that their potential uh, in video games is something that it's clear it would happen. It would, it would be a hit because we'd have more than 200 million people already globally on Netflix, but at what cost? And I think that's what Reed Hastings is probably struggling with, even though I have not picked his brain at all in more than a decade. Uh, um, I'm pretty sure that he was, if he was going to do it, he'd say, okay, yeah, we're going to get incremental revenue. Uh, and it may even be high margin revenue because we can have deals with video game players. People can stream stuff. They'll spend more time on Netflix. They'll have go nowhere else. But what will that do to the Netflix brand as far as a streaming entertainment video consuming service? Um, you know, I mean, Netflix has even been very hesitant to go into live TV, which is a form of television. Um, uh, how would they be just jumping all into to, to video gaming? I don't see it happening. Uh, but then again, we're talking on a day where, where Amazon has made it official. They're buying MGM uh, for the content. Uh, so who knows what is possible? There's just a discovery in AT&T uh, just a week ago. Uh, a lot of crazy things are happening. It, I, anything is possible. Uh, but I don't think it would, I, I think Netflix will do just fine without video games. But if it does, it'll be a hit. Um, but again, I'll just wonder if, if that'll hurt the brand in the long run. Yeah, there's the interesting part about that is there they're big on, you know, streaming, you, you don't download anything that's kind of, you know, they stay with that. And it seems like we're at least a few years, if not five years out from video game streaming becoming realistic. Because we've seen Stadia kind of flop. The tech just doesn't seem there yet. Maybe it's like five years from now when um, you're able to really bring the quote Netflix of games that can actually stream stuff. That might make sense, but it's kind of tough to see in the current current environment. It, it is hard. And again, you mentioned Stadia. I mean, again, I had like an offer because I was YouTube TV. I got like a free Stadia, you know, game controller and I had three month subscription. I never tried it once. Uh, and this is in the, in the element of full disclosure. Uh, my oldest son is a software engineer at Google, not on the YouTube side. He's on the cloud side. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, I have all love for Google. I'm a Google investor. And, and obviously, you know, it, it runs in the family. Uh, you know, I want Google to succeed. Um, but I just didn't see the purpose of this. Uh, you know, why do I need another game streaming service? Uh, and I wound up not trying it, which is to my lament because it was free. I should have actually taken advantage of it. But uh, yeah, so it, it is the kind of stuff where uh, if they come in, it may be almost like when Amazon uh, launched into their streaming product with Prime. Uh, most people were just, no, I don't care about Prime Video. I just want I just want my deliveries to be here, you know, my, and be here in two days. That's all I really want to be a Prime customer for. I think you may see that with Netflix too. But again, I don't put it past them. And if they did, I, I wouldn't say, oh, sell Netflix. I mean, that's, that's, that's you know, that, that was my mistake when I sold 98% of Netflix uh, when I thought, uh, you know, it hit a point where it was worth unloading at that point. Uh, but I definitely don't think it's, it'd be the smartest move for Netflix right now when they're doing so many things right with what they know the best. Right. That makes sense.
Okay. Uh, Disney is also another company we kind of want to hit on. And the big story for them this last year has obviously been Disney Plus. So uh, they've had also some launches, um, I believe, like new movies they've launched purely on Disney Plus. I know that was kind of in the heart of the pandemic. Um, so I'm curious how you think their relationship with the theaters is going to play out in the future. Do you think it's going to be a big part of their sort of release uh, schedule? Uh, or do you think it's going to stick with Disney Plus? Yeah, so I mean, last year was weird uh, for, for many different reasons. And, and in Disney's case, uh, th they stayed out of the movie theater. So when Soul came out, um, they, they delayed movies for as long as they can. I mean, movies like Jungle Cruise and Cruella and stuff that they just said, all right, let's just keep pushing them back um, so they don't have to release at this point. But when they said, all right, we just have to put it out, like a movie like Soul, uh, um, it, it came out, um, but, or Mulan, the live action Mulan, uh, neither one played in theaters. They just were available to, Soul was available to Disney Plus subscribers right at the very same day, you know, they for free if you're a Disney Plus subscriber. But with Mulan, they did what they call premiere access, something that they've done with Raya the Last Dragon in March. And they're doing again uh, later, uh, basically this Memorial Day weekend with Cruella, which is where if you pay $30, um, you can have access to it, streaming access to it for three months uh, before the rest of the Disney Plus subscribers get it at no additional cost. So um, I think that that's going to eat into obviously theater revenue, but I think you, you are Cruella will open Memorial Day weekend. It's opening right now as we speak. Um, at theaters everywhere. Uh, so you do have a case where they're going to be keep moving, putting movies into in theaters, but also using this, this, this very important, if you want to stay at home, which has become very, a lot of people spent the last year, a lot of times at home. And even though they want to get out and go to the movies and enjoy the experience, uh, they've also grown very comfortable in getting their, the best TV possible, uh, the most comfortable armchair possible uh, to enjoy entertainment at home. Disney's going to be able to cash in on both ends. And hopefully it adds up to more than they were making before just through movies. Uh, but I think it's a very interesting model that I think all of Hollywood uh, will eventually benefit from. And, and the movie theaters, you know, they're going to struggle, but they're not going to die uh, because I think there's still a market for that, especially for the big tentpole movies, the big action superhero films. And obviously, Disney is a big part of that with their Marvel and their, and their Lucasfilm, Star Wars and the Indiana Jones coming up and the new Avatar series. Uh, four more Avatar movies are coming out uh, in the coming years. Disney's behind all that. That's going to be very big in movie theaters, but it's also going to be very big in your own living room. Yeah. I'm curious if you have any takes on uh, how you think the future of theaters plays out just generally. I know AMC has kind of turned into a meme stock, but like, yeah, I, not, not yeah. Regard, just regarding that part. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, do you, do you think people will return to the theaters? Will it ever be what it once was? I know as a consumer, I kind of get that nostalgic feeling where I'll be a little upset if theaters go out of business. What's your take there? Yeah, and I'm not a bear on AMC, and I know, and I know that sounds weird, and it's almost like I should have my full title stripped from me. I know a lot of my fellow fools are pretty bearish on AMC, uh, but I think AMC has done a lot of smart things uh, in the pandemic. Uh, first of all, they stayed open again, and by stayed open means they were closed for a few months. But when they opened again over the summer, they stayed open, unlike Regal, that they just basically you know shut down for months, and they lost a lot of momentum. So AMC took the brunt, like it basically said, all right, I'll take the hit. I'll, I'll stay open. And all the, you know, the bad movies that couldn't release at any other time are going to come out now. No one's coming to the theaters. I'm going to stay open through that and lose a lot of money. Uh, but they did it to ha have the momentum that they're going to have now as we head into the summer season with a lot of big movies coming. So, but I think the future of, of movie theaters, if you look at AMC in particular, they did a lot of smart things. They, first of all, um, they were already doing like, like, like res reserve seating 
in some theaters. But once the pandemic happened, they had to figure out a whole system to how if someone picks this one seat, I have to make all these other seats around them unavailable to social distancing. So they beefed that up. Mobile ordering is something that we may just take for granted now. Uh, you know, you get it at Starbucks, you get it at, at Chipotle. Uh, but in movie theaters, especially in AMC, only a handful of movie theaters had mobile ordering where you can mobile order your concessions and then just pick it up when you get at the theater. Now, every uh, AMC has that, which is a big advantage because there have been times where I'm going to the movies and I live two blocks away from an AMC. So I, I go to AMC a lot pre-pandemic. Uh, I had the AMC stub. So I basically could see three movies a week. I didn't see three movies a week, but I had that movie pass-ish uh, 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 version of AMC pl plan. And if the line was too long, I said, you know, I, I really don't need the popcorn that bad. I don't need to pay for the $7 soda and I just move on. But with mobile ordering, the times that I have gone since the theater reopened and I've been vaccinated and I feel safe, um, uh, I have no problem mobile ordering and picking up my order. So it's gotten better at that. And AMC also had movie rentals. I mean, that you could rent out a whole theater for as little as $99 and invite up to 20 of your friends. And they would play whatever movie that they had. They had like a catalog, of like 30, 40 movies. You'd pick one and you could just rent that event, uh, which in the, early in the pandemic was important. But now, especially when people want like parties and something differentiated, uh, especially they're not using all their, it's over here by my house, it's a 24 multiplex AMC. They don't need them all right now. Uh, so they did a lot of very smart things. And I think it's that kind of thinking that's going to help AMC. The stock itself is going to maybe not do so well because they've, they've had their share count has basically exploded fourfold. Uh, you know, they've done a lot of stuff to stay, stay alive. But I, I do think it's a very promising company that is very underrated for what they did during the pandemic to, to stay alive and to evolve. And I think we're going to see that when we come out of the, the pandemic with more people coming to the movies from Memorial Day weekend and into the summer season. Right. It seems like it forced them to kind of just disrupt themselves so that they got pressured. And it seems like it, I haven't investigated those things, but it seems like what you're saying that those are all very smart tactics. Um, do we want to hit Fubo TV, Ryan? Now? Sure. All right. Yeah. So Fubo is an interesting one. Um, I know the stock's been trading wildly. There's a lot of, you know, short reports. There's a lot of investor criticism out there. there you know, there's a lot of uh, very, you know, some people are very bullish. Some people are very bearish. What potential do you see in this business? Kind of what's the thesis for Fubo going forward? Yeah, the thesis for Fubo is that a lot of people are cutting the cord. Uh, they're giving, you know, they're, they're, they're getting rid of their cable TV service. They're getting rid of, 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 of their satellite uh, television plan uh, and they're getting streaming services. And the problem is that as great as Netflix is, as great as Disney Plus is, you still need your access to the stuff you used to, live sports, uh, your, your live channels. And while you can get basically high def, you know, HD antennas and stuff uh, to stream some of the stuff, you still need access to, to the Disney channels, to the ESPNs, to all the stuff that you get through what they call live TV streaming. Streaming service, and this is what Fubo is, and they compete with YouTube TV, which is the top dog with a, a, a three million. Actually, they're not; they're three million subscribers. Uh, Hulu Plus Live TV, which is owned by Disney, is the top dog with uh, a little less than four million subscribers right now. Um, Fubo is less than six hundred thousand, so they're like fifth or sixth on the food chain, but they're growing faster than anybody else. Their subscriber base has doubled over the past year. So you think six hundred thousand isn't a lot? Uh, Five hundred and seventy some thousand, wherever they are, uh, it's not a lot, uh, but it is growing a lot faster. Uh, Hulu Plus Live TV went from 4.1 million to 4 million to 3.8 million in its last two quarters. Uh, so it's declining sequentially. FUBU is gaining. A, a lot of the critics, a lot of the people that are knocking FUBU expected FUBU to actually decline in subscribers during the first three months of this year. Um, and even FUBU itself was bracing people for that reality. Because that's what it has always done. Since it's a sports first kind of uh, service, it really thrives in the second half of the year when you have a lot of active sports, a lot of football, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, and they surprise people by actually increasing, a sequential increase. So uh, FUBU is growing. And more importantly, the FUBU bullish argument is 
look deeper than just the numbers because when live TV streaming services, it's easy to knock it as a commodity. And fair enough, if you just replace YouTube TV with, 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 with Sling TV, uh, with, with Hulu Plus Live TV, with Fubo TV, they're pretty much forgettable. Uh, they have a lot of the same channels. Fubo TV has more than three dozen sports channels, uh, but a lot of them are obscure soccer channels and stuff like that that you may not necessarily be interested in. And their prices for these services, it was $35 for most of them about two years ago. Now it's $60, $65, $70 because they've had to pass on these increases. They are the new cable companies, which is not a good look. But not only is Fubo TV gaining market share in this market, it's also generating a ridiculous amount of ad revenue on top of that. And I think ad revenue is the one thing that people always take for granted uh, with Fubo. So Fubo, uh, they're at $61, $62 average revenue just on they're getting from monthly subscription fees, but they're generating another $7, $8 a month per user uh, just on ad revenue on top of that. Because you have people engaged 120 hours is the average that the person spends a month. So we're talking again about four hours a month, more than someone spending on Roku. And that's Roku through all the channels. People are just spending on Fubo. That's a very dedicated, hardcore market of people that are there to consume ads. And it's, it's that market, the sports-loving market that marketers love. It's why people pay so much for Super Bowl ads. That's Fubo TV's audience. And the other final ingredient, I mean, basically it's, it's all these like things on the Sunday. And then the cherry on top is that in December and January of, of just this past December and earlier this year in January, they made two acquisitions that I think are going to be really important, even though a lot of people are saying it's, it's just a bad move by, by Fubo. And that is they bought a company that will help them launch a sports, a fantasy sports platform uh, this summer. And that's still on track. It's going to happen this summer. Uh, sort of like just our fantasy sports league and stuff like that. While you're watching games, you can start competing in real time with other Fubo TV subscribers and stuff like that. But they also launched a sports book. I mean, they also bought a company to give them the, the ability to launch a sports book before the end of the year. So you have sports fans uh, that are spending a bunch of time in front of their TV. You have the ability to not only play fantasy sports to make it more engaging. By the end of the year, you're going to make it easier on their phone. I mean, you won't be able to do it through the Roku remote and stuff like that because there's probably, you know, restrictions with Roku and stuff like that. They're doing stuff that YouTube TV is not. I mean, Google is not going to become a gambling company right now when regulators are looking at it. Disney, uh, even though I know they own ESPN, uh, they're not going to do it. And they can obviously partner with DraftKings or FanDuel to do pretty much what Fubo TV is doing. Uh, Fubo TV is doing like a homegrown solution to all this. But I think it's a very important bullish argument for Fubo that, yeah, it's a, it's, this is a co commodity business. They found a way to get $7, $8 a month extra in ad revenue. And now we get on top of that later this year, we're going to get the, the, whatever gaming uh, revenue they make off that. Um, I think it's, uh, it's going to be a very interesting and underrated company company uh, that I know a lot of people love to knock, but I think I love it when people knock it. What, uh, I guess the, when I'm thinking through it, it sounds like they have, uh, if it's sports driven, I imagine it costs a lot of money to get access to those uh, streaming rights. Um, so is it basically just like a threshold of users where do, do they have to meet like whatever it is, a million and a half to become profitable or do you have like a number in mind? I'm just, or I guess how, how are yeah. they going to improve their gross margins? Is that yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. and, and they are improving their gross margins. I mean, obviously when they market and stuff like that, I mean, they are profitable on a contribution margin basis. So, I mean, they are now... Pay, they're now making more money than they're paying out for content and for all this stuff, which is this didn't happen. It happened over the past year. And they're obviously it's not it's not profitable on the bottom line. And that will take some time. And again, it, it may take some time. I mean, I, I, we don't know if Hulu plus live TV is profitable with four million subscribers. We don't know if Sling, uh, if Sling TV or YouTube TV is profitable, but we know that they're important components to keep people close and keep them engaged with other things to come. And I think that's where um, as far as sports rights, it, it's whether whether you're 
you're a small person like Fubo or a large person like let's say YouTube TV with you know with, with three four million people, uh, it, you're paying per subscriber. Uh, so it's not so much that it's you know oh, I can't I, it's 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 not a bidding war. It's not for exclusivity. Even though sometimes you see exclusive deals for stuff, I don't think that's going to be the driver for Fubo because with a small service they're not going to land these exclusive deals. I think their thing is to this is our audience. And if you, if, I mean, every Hulu commercial I see is basically with a sports celebrity, with Baker Mayfield or anybody uh, uh, promoting that. Hey, we are live sports. Uh, uh, Barkley, Saquon Barkley, uh, uh, sports spots uh, saying Hulu is live sports. They want that to be the case. Fubo has it pretty much ingrained in their ecosystem, and that's what they they're known for. So I think that helps, and I think that it will help them establish the fact that you don't you, I, you don't need as many people as you think to become a profitable company if the persons you are are basically magnets for advertisers and are going to be heavy users of, of fantasy sports and eventual actual wagering, uh, which I think falls right into the lap of their audience right now. So I think it's going to be an interesting dynamic where Fubo TV's business a year from now may look dramatically different than it is right now. Uh, and it's a risk. I mean, it, it could backfire, which the stock is very risky. Of all the stocks we've talked about today, it is the most risky. Uh, but it's also the one I think that has the most upside if it's able to hit all these things. And do you think, I guess maybe my last question on Fubo is, so... I guess just personally, it seems like the sports leagues and the people that, you know, uh, host the TV rights or whatever it is, even around the globe, they're really the ones that have fumbled the the transition to streaming the most. Like, I can't even watch my local baseball team. It takes so – it's really, really hard to, like, start watching these things. Do you think that is one of the opportunities that football has? Because they, a lot of these leagues – I mean, some of them do well, like the NBA, but – that a lot of these leagues are really struggling to get their stuff onto the streaming services. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of them either they overplayed their hand. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's sports specific in particular, especially, and this is a problem with all all streaming services, but one, uh, it's it's Sinclair, which owns a lot of the regional sports, uh, which is now Bally Sports in most markets. Uh, only AT&T TV is, which is, uh, I mean, the worst interface of the four services that I, live TV streaming services that I've had, uh, ha- actually carry the Sinclair, at least locally down in South Florida. So if I want to watch Marlins games or the Miami Heat games, every single in-market game, I have to get Sinclair or I have to go back to my, you know, my cable provider uh, because even the NBA pass doesn't do it when you're in the city that these, these teams are in. So, uh, and it's, 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 it's a ridiculous thing that you would think, well, you, why, why doesn't Fubo have it? Well, why doesn't YouTube have it? Uh, they all gave them up last year. So obviously, they saw something that we didn't. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 always going to be this thing where, and, and you have deals like, let's say like Amazon, uh, they have the deal now with, uh, with uh, Sunday Night Football, I believe, or Thursday uh, Night Thursday Football. Thursday Night, yeah. Thursday yeah. Night, yeah. So, so you have these deals where they're striking deals, which may take things away from uh, the NFL networks and the other platforms that would stream through these channels. So it's, I don't think sports leagues are doing the right thing by that. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think Fubo TV is going to get the right balance of have enough sports uh, to be able to build its advertising and its gaming revenue. And that's going to be the gravy. If it breaks even, if it just charges as much enough to, on subscriptions to cover its cost on programming, um, Fubo TV is going to be a very successful company on everything you can do on top of that. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Wrap up questions. Uh, uh, yeah, I can hit the first one. So yeah, we asked this for everyone. What's one financial saying that you disagree with? Um, I mean, I... I think I think maybe I mean and again buy and hold is something that I think a lot of people uh, believe in especially in the Motley Fool it's, it's part of our mantra I mean some of our best stocks are the the Amazons of the world uh, the, the Netflixes of the world that if I would have bought and held uh, would have been a game changer for me uh, but uh, personally but I I think it's 
I'm buy and hold, but I consider myself more buy and scold uh, because I am not very forgiving if a stock right out of the gate disappoints me. Uh, so I don't mind buying an IPO uh, you know, that's, that's basically run up. I don't mind buying a company that I think is dynamic. Uh, but when I see it, you know, basically it's, it's on our second or third date. I think we're not compatible. I don't mind cutting a stock loose. I will not sell a stock because it's gone too high. I will not sell stock because it's done really well, because I don't want to punish those names, uh, um, at least not entirely. I mean, I may trim some of my position, which unfortunately I did with Netflix just to diversify uh, over the years. But I don't think, you know, I think buy and hold, just a blind buy and hold, like just buy these stocks and just shut off your computer. Don't look any quotes for another 10 years and then wake up and see what happens. I don't think that's necessarily always the best approach, at least not for me. Uh, so I think buy and hold is something that I, I believe in if the stock is doing everything right, uh, but I, 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 you know, buy, but with a very, you know, with a very, you know, a short leash uh, early on in, in my ownership of stocks. Right. And that's like with Fubo. I mean, I don't know, you know, you might have a different mindset, but maybe like, you know, three, four quarters kind of coming down the line. They're not really showing that they're executing. That's something where maybe, you know, you're starting out with them. All right. They're not doing what I thought they were going to do. You can't be afraid to tough bait. Yeah, and, and Fubo is a great example. I, I mean, I've owned it since last year. Shortly after it basically went public in September, October, whenever it was, um, and this was a company that the stock it was traded as high as sixty in December, like right before the holidays, sixty dollars, and then it, it's down down to twenty and change. And because the stock is down, that's not a reason for me to sell. I look back at every report, and this is a company that four times, it's only been public for maybe seven, eight, nine months, four or five times, it's actually raised its guidance for either initially 2020 uh, outlook and then 2021 subscriber outlook. So if I see the numbers moving forward, if I see that this is a company that kind of like a beat and raise kind of company that every three months comes out and says, oh yeah, we told you this was it, but hey, look, we're actually better and we're raising that. that you can't go wrong with those kind of stocks, even if the stock itself is going the wrong way. Way. So yeah, it, it's the kind of stuff I, I look for things that are wrong. Um, and and, if, and not, not, I don't look for stock prices that are wrong. I look for the fundamentals when they start to fall apart. And I haven't seen that happen at Fubo. If anything, I've seen Fubo defy the odds. It's just the, the, the market doesn't see it that way, unfortunately, right now. Okay. All right. That makes sense. That makes total sense. Last question then. Uh, what is one piece of advice you have for anyone that's considering a career in finance? Or investing. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's again, it's it's uh, start a music band, uh, let it fail miserably, <laughs> uh, go for an MBA while you buy yourself time, and then find uh, that platform that you can actually. Uh, uh, make yourself mo for. But uh, actually, I mean, more to the point, uh, yeah, so it, actual advice on, on, on for finances, find yourself, find the thing that you can do that you think you have an edge on over anybody else. Um, if it's actual, like if it's actual money, make, like, like actual investing and stuff like that, find, be, find yourself that I have this perspective. I know this industry really well and I could tell. Um, you know, if you ask me like what the next hot biotech is, I couldn't even begin to fake uh, an answer for you. Um, in the rule breaker side, we have a great biotech guy. We have a great cloud computing guy. Uh, I'm not either of those people, uh, but I can tell you, I can spot the next Roku. Uh, you know, I can spot the next Peloton. I can see something that's happening early on, you know, consumer trends happening. Like something like that is an advantage. And especially if you want to do, if it's a finance, as far as financial writing, uh, which is really where I've, you know, made my bones over the years. Um, have a unique voice. Uh, it's very important to when you come in uh, that it's especially, and I know the Motley Fool was just inviting to me because I, I was a journalism major for my first year until I realized I was, I was in this room and it's like, there was no other journalism major at the UM, University of Miami Hurricane newspaper. And my, my editor said, don't be a journalism major, be something else. Uh, so, but I never 
forgot my love of writing. And then he, I was there basically like Dan Lebatard, who's like a big ESPN now on his own. He was right. a sports editor when I was there. Uh, Michelle Kaufman, who wound up marrying Dave Barry. She was the, another sports editor while I was just a couple years at the Hurricane at the University of Miami newspaper. Uh, um, uh, JC Cota, who is my editor, uh, he's a writer for like the new Mary Tyler Moore show, a show 911 that's doing pretty well now. Uh, so everybody went on to do these really neat things, but it was not necessarily journalism related. Uh, they just knew that that was a good base, but they bounced off something. So have that, but always, you know, early on during The Motley Fool, I knew I could write, which is something that a lot of people that knew about finance wasn't. So I was able to set, distinguish myself early on in my Motley Fool tenure by being able to give copy editors smooth copy uh, that they didn't have to come back with me like five, six, seven different times for edits. But it also was, again, uh, it's, it's, you know, a lighthearted approach also helped to stand out in The Motley Fool because I'm not afraid to throw a joke, uh, not a very obscure joke. I'm not a, just, just something that would at least make the story light and more accessible to a broader audience. Helped me out in The Motley Fool in the early days and beyond. Okay. All right. That perfect. was perfect. Yeah, I think that's all the questions we have. Thank you for joining us, Rick. Thank um, you for taking the time yeah. for the redo. I think it went well. <laughs> um, I guess where can listeners find you? I know you're on Twitter. Uh, do you have a handle? Do you know it? Yeah. Yeah, well, I know I know my head's pretty easy. It's at market. So basically, M A R K E T um, at market. I was I was early on Twitter. Uh, um, yeah, and, and yeah, it's a it's a great handle, but it's also a terrible handle because uh, there's like an at market, which is like a food hall in the Philippines. So all it's always someone just saying, "Oh, I'm at market," and "Hey, at market." And it's like <laughs> I I don't know, I don't know what's going on. And every once in a while, I, I'll get like a request, "Hey, can you sell it to me?" Or is a hacker trying to you know take it from me? Uh, so it's it's you know it's it's a luxury that's not uh, as great as it sounds. Uh, but I'm just glad I was early enough to be in Twitter to have the at market handle. Uh, um, and yeah, that, that's where I am. I, you know, I, I, I'm trying to be more active on Twitter. So yeah, do find me there. Uh, uh, I, I think I can be interesting sometimes. We'll see. Okay. Yeah, it's a valuable asset, that Twitter yeah. handle. Could be one <laughs> yes. of your best investments. <laughs> yes, it, it could, I won't sell 98% of it. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. perfect, perfect. All right. Thank you. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Ryan. All right, welcome back in. Thanks again to Rick for coming on the show. We appreciate it, uh, but we're gonna kick things off with our stories. I'm going first. Uh, it's the convertible debt takeover. So there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week, by the way, I'm loving my subscription. It's great. Yeah, I get the hand-me-down, so I'm, I'll probably be reading this later this week. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, I found it pretty interesting. So the gist of the story is that public companies are selling bonds that could be converted into stock at a record rate. Uh, I think we've kind of seen this with a lot of our portfolio companies. But so far in 2021, 97 U.S. listed companies have issued $54.3 billion of convertible bonds. 28 of those companies are paying no interest at all on those. Fascinating. Um, and that's a record rate, by the way. Uh, so I think that's the most in this time. And it's set to eclipse the full year numbers pretty fast here for last year was a record. And yeah, for anyone that doesn't know, do you want to just explain quick how a convertible bond works? Because it won't make sense you know, if you want to just give a quick explainer. Yeah, so they uh, issue debt. Um, and it's typically banks that are uh, funding that. And Sometimes they have a coupon, so an interest rate that's payable over however many years. But if it, the stock gets up to a certain price, instead of paying that debt, it's just converted into stock. So it kind of dilutes as opposed to uh, having to pay those borrowings off. Yeah, and it's at a certain strike price, basically, where it yeah. converts to an equal amount of shares. Pretty simple, but yeah. Sorry, keep continue. And then apparently the average interest coupon is 1.41% across all those 97 companies that have issued the, uh, these convertible bonds. That's the lowest ever. 
uh, on average, the companies that are issuing these bonds will only need their share prices to rise 39% within the next five years. Uh, pretty uh, a conversion premium that's pretty low for uh, how low these interest rates are. Um, the article also went on to mention that the companies are willing to pay $10 million in uh, the derivative contracts as well to protect against dilution. Do you mean $10 million or is that $10 billion? No, it's $10 million. 10 So you're million paying... Per. Or is that yeah, per? so it's like, let's say you did half a billion uh, on these convertible notes that you've raised, then you do $10 million in, in derivative contracts just to ensure that you're not getting severe dilution. In case your stock 5Xs for some random reason, something like right. that. Yeah, Kind of just a little hedge there. Uh, but some of the companies that were mentioned in the article include Airbnb, who issued $2 billion in February with a 0% coupon uh, and a 60% premium. Well, that premium is probably a little higher now. That smart suppose, move by yeah. that team, they really called the top on their own stock. Yeah, you know, smart good on them. You know, yeah. <laughs> and then Expedia was another one. They got a good, uh, I think it was about a billion in there. Spotify was mentioned, Coinbase, obviously lots of others. Is there any reason that companies shouldn't be doing this right now? Well, if, they're, yeah, if it's available to them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, added, it's definitely still leverage. I wouldn't pretend like it's not. So you got to think of it like, or this is how I think of it. You're basically buying low and selling high on yourself. There's two reasons you'd want to raise these convertible notes. One is to reinvest into the business and hopefully generate more profits in the future where uh, yeah, you're like, your stock will likely rise, something like that, and you'll be able to convert into equity. It'll all be worth it to shareholders because of the profits you're generating, increasing free cash flow per share or whatever. That's probably at what you know Airbnb is thinking, Spotify, Coinbase, etc., but another reason you want to do it, and it's a lot more simple, is to buy back your stock. For example, someone like Dropbox has done that, and that's literally just buying low, theoretically, and hoping in the future to sell high and convert some of that equity or convert some of that debt back to equity in the future. So hopefully, along with your investors, you're adding a little bit of leverage if you succeed in your business plans. Getting a little, you, you kind of understand what I mean there. Where yeah. You're, it's still leverage, and the big risk is that if you're not profitable currently, you're going to have to pay that back in cash if, you're, yeah. if, you, if your business isn't doing that well. So it's definitely not risk-free, if, but it, it's an interesting strategy. If, if you're a business and you think your return on invested capital can be in excess of whatever the interest rate is on these convertibles, which in some cases is zero, mm-hmm. as long as you can get above your cost of capital with the, the money that you're investing... I mean, obviously, that's not a sure bet that you'll be able to do it, but there's no reason, theoretically, yeah, not to I do mean, it. Yeah, I mean, the dilutive stuff can be interesting as well. I mean, that can really hurt them. I mean, one company we covered, and I, I can't remember the exact numbers, that Farfetch did a bunch of convertible notes. Their stock went up like 500% over the last two years or so. That's really going to bite them in the butt. So I wonder if they used any derivatives. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. And I don't think that's going to mitigate all the risk if your stock does phenomenally. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the shareholders that are, you know, along the ride, I don't think they're going to be complaining too much. It, it, it really, it masks though, like some of the, I don't know, it, it's different risk. It's not like the risk of just defaulting. There's smaller risks at play, you know, with the diluted stuff, stuff like that, yeah. you know, it, it's just different. I, 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 if you're confident in your business, I don't, and you have a lot of runway to reinvest, or you think your share price is really depressed and you want to buy back stock, this can be a great way to do it. 
But again, it's it's not it's still adding leverage for sure. At least in my mind, that's how I look at it. Does this make the whole uh uh, low interest rates validates these premium val- valuations uh, argument seem uh, more valid because uh, I mean everyone talks about having this low cost of capital with interest rates but then you start to see a record number of companies actually using that to their advantage uh, uh, yeah I'm happy with uh, if companies we own take out debt either standard like bonds that can are at I don't know, you can get like 3% interest at a bond that is due in 2030, yeah. 2035. I mean, by all means, do that if you're confident in the business, and I'm happy with it. Uh, I, I This could be true. This stuff's very complicated, though, and it seems like the answer, I don't know, that I come back to is I don't know, and it's not something I would really worry about. Yeah, the thing that doesn't make sense for me is – a lot of people are saying, well, the cost of capital is so low that it warrants a uh, sales multiple. But there's only, there's only so much value that, a, that companies can provide to That's true. people. There's, you know what I mean? there's only so there. many things people need and other businesses need. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know, what, is everyone going to be buying 10 phones? I, I don't know. You gotta, you gotta, <laughs> well, if they have enough leverage, yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right, what's know. your story? Okay, here's a fun one. The Dow Jones Industrial Average turned 125 years old this week. Blue mm. Chip Index was first published on May 26th. So, I guess last week, when you're listening to this, in 1896, it's been basically it's been the number one index for a, a long time. Even though you know the S and P is kind of a lot of people argue that's a better gauge since it's more than just thirty companies, um, and it's market cap weighted instead of the Dow, which is price weighted. Interestingly, you would think like, oh, it's price weighted. It might just be trading randomly. It's so weird how it tracks really well with the broad market. It, it's kind of I don't know. You wouldn't think it would, but that's kind of a side tangent. And the Dow was founded in, uh, or sorry, created by Charles Dow, who I guess wanted to put his own name on there, who was also the founder of the Wall Street Journal and one of the inventors of technical analysis. Yeah, so one, of the, one of the goats. Yeah, one of the unsung, or not unsung, I guess um, a lot of people don't know who he is, but stuff he created has a lasting impact to this day. Some of the companies that were originally on the list, General Electric, who was on it till like 2018, and then they got taken off. So they had been on for over 100 years. There's American Tobacco, which I guess in today is within a bunch of other companies. And then Tennessee Iron and Coal. They were all part of the original list. It was really the industrial average, which now it's more, you know, you got some industrial companies on there, but you got like, you know, Apple, Amazon. Microsoft's I don't think on, there. on there. I yeah. thought Microsoft's on there. Coca-Cola, services companies. I think uh, I don't have the list in front of me. I think like Walgreens is on there Salesforce now. Salesforce got put in. Salesforce, they? yeah, I think I remember that. I didn't want to, uh, I kind of remembered it. I didn't, didn't want to say <laughs> it for sure. Um, average return over the 125 years, 7.69%. Pretty good. Yeah. Uh, Would have turned $1,000 into $10.5 million uh, based on the simple compound interest, ca- or not, the compound interest calculator I used online. Um, if that number's wrong, let me know. But that is if you put in $1,000 and invest it at a 7.69% interest rate grew. over 125 years, $1,000 would grow into $10.5 million, So pretty good. Yeah. But I don't know how people haven't, but just they should have just put it in 125 years yeah, ago. Yeah, 125 years. They're, they're sitting just pretty. Just sat on it. My great-great-grandma is <laughs> kicking herself right now. Um, 
the but also I think that shows the power. So you know, a thousand to ten point five million is amazing. But I think it shows the power of inching up to like ten percent or even twelve percent. And if you're Buffett or someone like that, twenty percent over a long period of time because Buffett and a lot of other people have crushed that number uh, over a way shorter time frame. I believe. Yeah, and half the numbers haven't time. been. Yeah, the numbers aren't. They're a little hard to do because it's been over such a long time period. But Buffett, uh, since like the fifties, the late fifties, when he had his partnership, if you invested a thousand dollars, it would probably be worth. If just kind of run some mental math from what the update was in like Snowball, I think it would be like a hundred million dollars today, depending on the price. Mm-hmm. So, just upping that from like half seven point eight percent to like eighteen or twenty percent, wherever he's had, is quite impressive. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on this? This is kind of not really a news story. Just you know. No, it is interesting because you get so many of those figures of like, if you invested, if you just invest dollar cost average, you're going to get blah, blah, blah percent. Yeah. Uh, but it's gotten pretty close. Even the Dow versus the, the S&P. Dow, and it's, it's just 8% over 125 years compounded annually. Yeah. Pretty impressive. Seven, yeah. 7.7%. I think that isn't including dividends. So it's not even total return. I think total return would be higher. But there are some big drawdowns. I mean, yeah, obviously the Great Depression. Depression. Yeah, did you see the chart? 68 to 82. You see the chart that, or the whatever video that came out this week that was like tracking the Dow in real time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Depression would have been demoralizing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's 10 years and you're right back to where you were. Such a different time period. I mean, it's a whole complicated thing. (laughs) Gosh, yeah, I mean, the Depression, what was it, 30 something years? 1929, 1952, something like that? No, no, that'd be 25 years around. It was 20, some 20, uh, a little more than 20. I mean, you're also going 68 to 82, you're flat with a ton of inflation. I don't know, the last 40 years have been the best. Yeah, but you also could have just picked treasuries at 16%. Yeah, you would have done pretty well there too, uh, although you would have had to lever up probably, but treasuries, I guess everyone levers up with that. All right, well... News story this week, uh, Acorns is spacking. The official name of the company is Acorns Grow Incorporated. Wow, great name. Uh, but they've announced plans to go public via a SPAC. Uh, the merger values the company at $2.2 billion, um, and it's combining with Pioneer Merger Corp, whose shares jumped 2% on the news. If you don't know how the platform works, I'm sure you've maybe seen those YouTube ads. Uh, but Yeah, they used to advertise a lot. They're always on CNBC, too. (laughs) It rounds up users' payments to the nearest dollar and invests the proceeds into various different funds. Uh, I think the user kind of gets their gets to pick or choose so basically if you go out and buy a sandwich for seven dollars 55 cents 45 cents would immediately get deposited and invested into your acorns account and it's like index funds right i think so but then there's also bonds and then there's like bond funds and I'm, i'm pretty sure there's a you get a wide variety um but users have to subscribe to the service, so it's a dollar a month. Okay. Uh, and then it can be more. I think it can be $3 or $5 for premium accounts. But there's also an expense ratio on the funds, which kind of frustrates me. Like, why do you need both? Mm-hmm. Why can't you just do, like, a sharing agreement with the expense ratio? Well, whatever. Shows the moat of Vanguard and Schwab and, uh, and iShares, BlackRock. I think, <laughs> right? Yeah, I suppose. Uh, they reportedly have 4 million subscribers with about $4.7 billion in AUM, or assets under management. Uh, Let me run that number quick, see what the average deposit is. Sorry, keep going. Uh, and then uh, in the merger, the CEO is planning to give 10% of his personal stake in the company away in a program that grants shares to its customers, which 
sounds troubling. So Acorns is giving away Acorn stock to Acorns users. I always have a problem with that. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, especially when it's the CEO giving it away. Maybe giving it away means it's like a lottery thing where you get it for free, whatever. Yeah, all right. If we're running those numbers quick, it's barely over. It's $1,175 per account. Yeah, that's, and that's very, maybe, very low. <laughs> I think that's probably what Robinhood's at too. I mean, and if you think about it, you can go ahead and you can put extra money in there. But if you're just amassing money through like 20 cent inclusions you know what i mean like at, yeah. like you round up or whatever a dollar a month is a pretty hefty price to pay like let's yes, say you get a hundred dollars a year in there and then you pay twelve dollars a year in subscriptions yeah versus the amount of people that you know the average account value yeah, yeah. It seems, uh, that seems, seems like tough to really do. steep um anyway but uh notable investors include jennifer lawrence the rock ashton kutcher uh, so, uh, all star team there. Uh, and <laughs> Ashton Kutcher was huge red flag. I mean, I'm sorry, like the guy's fine. A Rod's in there too. Actors and stuff. Worse. Yeah, I think Kevin Durant's in there too. Whatever. Like these people are obviously going to do well with this investment, but I'm sorry when I see this, it's just a red flag. Ashton Kutcher. I mean, he didn't. I mean, he he was all in on WeWork. Uh, yeah, and it's honestly like when he's on there, I'm Ripple like, oh, or whatever, which provides essentially no value. Yeah, it's like the it's like the opposite of a Sequoia or an Altos or um, Anderson Horowitz or a, whatever Peter Thiel's fund is. And when you see that, you're like, okay, this is interesting. When you see the this list, you're like, and the same thing was with Oatly. I'm like, yeah, and you did. You're like, well, I don't, I don't know here. <laughs> At first, you see like, oh, Ashton Kutcher, VC, that's cool. And then oh, you like dig into some of the companies, and they're honestly ripping off a lot of customers. This seems maybe well, it's a, I think maybe it's a net positive, but they're. The users are paying a lot of hidden fees. I love to see the numbers. Uh, I want to see some audited uh, financials. Uh, I mean, this valuation seems steep. At yeah, uh, at this AUM to market cap valuation, Schwab would be the largest company in the world. Yeah, so AUM is uh, four point seven, two point two billion. So yeah, Schwab, I think Schwab BlackRock, has like five or six trillion. Yeah, Schwab, BlackRock, and Vanguard. Yeah, and I get it's different. You know, Robinhood is yeah, different too, stuff like that. But they charges. should have three, three, four trillion out of all those in market cap. I mean, it makes no sense. Do you think this is a net positive for the? investment world getting people in and having i mean it's it encourages a little more diversification yeah i think it's fine it's fine think- it's i mean i don't know there's so many fees out there i mean I, i'm not going to recommend this to anyone literally what i do no i wouldn't just either. recommend i don't know whatever take your pick schwab vanguard fidelity whatever start buying some index funds see how that works that's how if they just up. taught, like, if there was just a class in the sixth grade that set everyone up with an IRA or something or some Vanguard or Schwab account, it would alleviate, like, an entire industry would be wiped out of these of pointless apps. Movie, yeah. I, I, I know say, life's too short to index, but. <laughs> some of your money, some of your money. I mean, you know, it depends what your strategy is and it depends if you love it, but. It's a complicated issue because it's like, all right, this is good. You're getting people to invest, but it's almost like those mutual funds back in the day. I know someone that pays paid a lot of money to like one of these, you know, like a monthly subscription, but they're you know they're wealthier, so it was like a little higher per month, yeah. and it just seemed like, all right, you're getting less of a return. You get an index fund, unless you're going with some active manager that has a strategy that is a little differentiated. And it's not just closet indexing, which I guess is talking our own book a bit, but yeah. 
it's just so tough. I don't know. The fees, it's just tough. I don't know. Maybe they'll make it work. But, you know, can't be skeptical. Yeah, I would say, I don't know. I, I guess if they got rid of the subscription thing and they just did sort of an expense ratio sharing agreement yeah. or something like that, I would say this is a total net positive. Oh, it's huge, great. For sure. Love it. Yeah. I just don't think they need the subscription, especially considering the average account size. But let's get but to that's your- the only way they make money, though. It's no way. It's worth like $100 million if I mean, I just look at the expense ratios out there. If you're doing, what, 10 basis points? I mean. Yeah. All right. So. Uh, what's your story? Okay. Amazon Unbound is a new book. So I'm going to do some stories from that. Um, a lot of stories coming out from people on Twitter, stuff like that. Just stuff in the news. I mean, it's the new Bradstone book follow-up on the everything store. Um, I'm like 75% done, so I thought there was some interesting things to share. I got three stories. First one, I'm gonna do a funny one. So in the 20, and this chronicles Amazon from like 2011 to now, and it basically centers around Bezos, who is you know the founder, CEO of the company. So from 2013 to 2014, this is when Amazon was trying to invest heavily into a voice technology, Alexa, to get it really good enough to work reliably. Because at that point, you know, Siri was really bad. They were trying to perfect the technology. A lot of companies were doing it. It was kind of a race to first. And, you know, Amazon, I guess, eventually won. So they were doing tons of testing, recording, transcribing. And then Bezos was taking it on as one of his projects, too. He was kind of like, you know, I want updates on this all the time. And uh, funny anecdote that he got from a source, uh, the author. One time, engineers read a transcript from Bezos' home where he was so frustrated at Alexa's ineptitude that he told it to, quote, shoot yourself in the head. And they said they were very stressed that they were going to lose their jobs. Um, <laughs> that would be tough to see the CEO doing that. Yeah. Um, second story, uh, we have a lot of strong proof from this that Amazon's, and I guess this is kind of a personal takeaway, it's a little subjective, but you know, uh, a lot of Amazon's announcements that garner the headlines are a lot of the fluff that we kind of imagine um, all those theories that people have like, oh, Amazon announces something. Yeah, but they're not, they're actually, you know, you know what I mean? Like a product isn't actually there. So one story was around 2013 when they were just in, starting to invest in prime air, kind of getting into logistics, stuff like that. So on 60 minutes, Bezos said within logistics, they were working on the aerial drones to deliver packages. You know, the whole, how the hype cycle around that, that still seems to be there. People are like, oh, they're going to start delivering drones. And obviously, we all know that hasn't happened yet. But operation executives told the author that at the time, that was like completely BS, wasn't even on their radar. So the question I have is, knowing this in the past, is it safe to say always take a grain of salt with these Amazon announcements? And I guess a lot of big tech announcements in general, except Apple. They're, they're always secretive until they, until they release stuff. Yeah, I'd say pay more attention to what they're not talking about. Uh, they weren't vocal about AWS. And look what that turned into. They were actually purposely masking it. They were they hated how they had to in twenty fifteen they had to um, break it out because it became ten percent of revenue yeah. on, on the balance sheet, and that was kind of like they didn't want to tell people how it, you know they wanted that head start for some Microsoft and all those people. So yeah, I mean a lot of their announcements. Uh, we like that Amazon announcement arbitrage. I guess you could say where stocks get tanked because of. Uh, uh, some announcement in their category. They're investing heavily into anything, and it's just like, uh, all right. <laughs> Everything else drops. Yeah. yeah it's- there was a time period in like 2015, 2017 when Amazon would announce something, and people would just basically price in like they were going to take over the entire industry. 
Yeah, and I mean, Amazon's known to like try stuff and then cut it if it doesn't work out. They cut it pretty fast. So I mean, it, they, it's kind of how they built their entire business. So it uh, it's not surprising that they try all these things. But yeah, I take it with a grain of salt. And they're way more. Uh, eager to announce things typically than like other companies who might wait till they actually have a product stuff like that I think they do it just because they want to see stocks tank well I mean that gives them <laughs> adva- it gives them an advantage if, if the if, you know when they I don't know buy Whole Foods and the stock goes up that gives them technically you know they bought Whole Foods for free theoretically if you're looking at the share price um, but yeah all right well, the last story here is an interesting one about how profitable the business is so Ads, yeah, as we all know, play a crucial role for retail. And this also is an example, I guess, of how Bezos, like uh, a lot of the complaints people had were that he had a tendency to micromanage and exert a ton of pressure on his managers. So uh, the anecdote is at a big meeting to go over the retail business in 2017, so I think there's a few dozen people in this room, Bezos asked what unit profitability would be in retail if you X'd out advertising. This wasn't available. They they didn't really have that calculation for them. But instead of waiting until the meeting ended, unit finance VP for retail, Dave Stevenson, or Stephenson, had to go through his documents and calculate the number on his smartphone while everyone just sat in silence for five minutes. And then when he finished, Bezos asked him to do 2016, 2015, and 2014 right after. How that's one of the most I would be sweating bullets. I mean, yeah. think about that pressure. Yeah, Bezos sounds uh, stressful to work for. Amazon sounds like the most stressful company to work for. I would, I, I mean, I know people get a lot of money to work there, and it's probably you know pretty uh, engaging, but it sounds incredibly stressful. Yeah, I'm surprised I they all it. have their hair still. It seems like everyone should go bald from stress. Yeah, I want to do it, and I'm sure you could get, especially if they're taking options packages. Maybe Amazon's a good investment, but I feel like. They get a lot of employees, and we've talked about this before, they get a lot of employees who are ex- eager to be in the business because they want the stock options, Yeah. which is, but they're looking at it retrospectively, where it's like, these are the returns other employees have got from their stock options, whereas now you're investing in the largest business in the world. Yeah, and it's just the culture, you know, it's kind of, yeah, I don't want, like, like people are like, oh, you know, that's how you get to an empire, you have to, you know. You have to be so aggressive. You got to be working seven days a week. But then you look at Google, and they give people like twenty percent of their time to go into free t- free projects, basically do your own thing, come up with stuff. That is super laid back. They're basically giving everyone a ton of perks, flying, yeah. you know, first class, all that stuff. And they're right up there with Amazon. So I think two different strategies can work. Kind of depends what you like. Yeah, agreed. All right, uh, is that everything for your Amazon? On that is, yeah. I would recommend getting it. Honestly, it's really great to like see how they evolved the the backstory of everything and it kind of can paint a picture of what their competitive positioning are today because it really you know we joke about them entering every industry they are important as like a competitor to a lot of companies i'm assuming everyone owns yeah all right uh my next story my last story is the bullshit job boom uh and so this is it kind of resurfaced on twitter this week thanks to nick seipel who kind of uh our editor yeah nick, if you're listening. Yeah. he posted it uh, it's a New York article, but it's from like 2018, and it was covering a story or, or a uh, book called uh, I'm blanking on the name here, uh, "Bullshit Jobs." And so, there, yeah. it's 
the premise of it, and I, now I don't necessarily agree with this, and I'm sorry if you have one of these occupations that we're talking about, uh, is that there's a whole bunch of jobs that are basically useless, uh, and there's they're creating more and more of them. Uh, so some firm, not sure who, surveyed a group of British people asking if they thought their jobs made a meaningful contribution to the world. 37% said no. I think like 14% or something like that was undecided. Uh, and think about it, you're not really inclined to say no. So there, yeah. uh, I guess there's uh, a fair amount of people that don't really uh, feel fulfilled by their job. The author of the book, uh, David Grable, also interviewed someone, and here was a quote from him. He said, I do digital consultancy for global pharmaceutical companies' marketing departments. I often work with global PR agencies on this and write reports with titles like How to Improve Engagement Among Key Digital Healthcare Stakeholders. It is pure, unadulterated BS and serves no purpose beyond ticking boxes for marketing departments. Uh, there, was a lot more, there was a lot more quotes kind of like that. And the point wasn't that these people are meaningless, but they, they are getting compensated so well for, for something that doesn't really provide a ton of value and they f they themselves find meaningless uh, yeah i mean mckinsey exists i don't know <laughs> That's, yeah um, and great i question that graber identifies five different types of careers that could be categorized as these bs jobs one is flunkies people assigned to hang around to make their superiors feel more important so Ooh, they have those at amazon bezos has like six of those doorman <laughs> assistants stuff like that yeah if you're thinking about big corporate bureaucracy there's a all these are going to get classified in there. Goons, which is arms race muscle, is basically what he says. It's using like – he uses the example of Oxford PR staff whose jobs are to convince people that Oxford is a good school. Mm. Oh, it's like how Facebook has like a thousand-person PR team. I think like Scott Galloway likes to make that yeah. comparison, right? And then there's duct tapers, which is people meant to patch or bridge a process their bosses don't want to do. So like an airline employee uh, that – that sole job is to console people who lost their bags. Uh, so the, and the, these are examples that were kind of mentioned in that article. Box tickers is number four. Employees who are going through the motions that are basically just building reports, often using paperwork to give the appearance that things are happening. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, that, uh, one's, that one's the big one. That, that is the elephant in the room. I would say t this fifth one, task, master, task masters. Oh, yeah, this one too. It's yeah. unnecessary superiors. So people that are designed to manage people who don't need managing or people that are put in place to create random assignments or pointless tasks for others. And this was kind of uh, – this was referenced in response to a tweet that was highlighting the, the Canadian pension plan. And it was yeah, it was kind like of a term terminal value on Twitter, right? Well, it was someone else, but Terminal Value retweeted it. And oh, then the, okay. it came in, uh, the report basically talked about uh, all the bloat that exists at the Canadian Pension Plan. Uh, so the role of the program is basically just to invest money. Uh, and they've seen... For the, for the, you know, the people on the plans. Yeah. Yeah. And they've seen pretty mediocre performance and it was plagued mostly by ex excessive cost and management fees. So since 2000, total costs for the Canadian pension plan have gone from $4 million to $4.4 billion. A year? Maybe? Uh, I don't know. I don't God, have a figure. Dude, I, I mean, those are all, I mean. Either way. You need like, excessive. I don't know, six people. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, even if you're well, going well, to... Eat, okay, go ahead. Okay. okay, the payroll employees, when they started, were five. There were five people yeah. at the Canadian Pension Plan. Now there's 1,936. 
what the hell could all those people be doing? Yeah, I know. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. Financial services is one of the lowest overhead businesses. Yeah, that's why. Like, look at Berkshire. <laughs> yeah. How many people do they have at headquarters? Seven, and it's a 17. $500 billion business? Yeah, I mean, and some of those are like, they're just, you know, the assistant part is just to make, give Buffett less ta- medial tasks during his day. I mean, and Munger is, th- you know what I mean? Like, Munger is there, but, and, but he really doesn't do much. He's just kind of the, the wisdom guy, <laughs> as they like to describe But he's him. not even there. He's, I know, in he's not California, there. He, he's just not there. He's just on phone calls. Yeah, the, I mean, if you look at, and we're not experts on, I don't know, asset management, pension plans and things like that. But it seems to me that you need like an accountant or two because it's a very simple process. And even if you're not just going to index, you only need two to three people to find active managers. I mean, what are you going to do? Interview every hedge fund in the world? Like, come on. How many, you know, it's, like you, need you don't need people. an analyst for every corner of the world. Like just either in, either like index and have like, two people or add a few people and index a lot of it <laughs> you know what i mean like what are we doing it's such uh, yeah and it i i guess do you agree with this idea that there's a lot of corporate bloat oh for sure i mean we all know it it's all like a it's all like a it's all like a game we know you know what i mean if you if you've been an intern over the last t- decade you oh. know it's all i mean if you ever had an internship over the last decade and it's not like whatever uh Blue collar or something like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's it, okay. First off, what you do with the internship, like, granted, it's great. I, I had an internship. It's it's fantastic. <laughs> you don't do much, and then you realize that a lot of people aren't actually doing anything. They're working like two hours a day, and yeah. this is not to. This is on every single person. And what what makes me realize it, which I love of having the freedom of not really having a boss, is that you only need to work three four hours a day, and you can make a living. Yeah, it makes me ascribe kind of to the Netflix model of, all right, we're going to get rid of uh, 75% of our employees and just pay the really high performers exceptionally well. Yeah, or just tell, you know, like, yeah, no, that, that I mean, that makes sense. Uh, it's tough, though. I think, honestly, people, but you don't the, need to work that many hours a day. <laughs> so many things are automated these days. Yeah, well, everyone thought uh, digitization would kind of kill this, but it's only grown in the last few years. Uh, so it's like there's roles now to take care of different digital processes that probably didn't exist five years ago. No, that's true. I well, would also, but what's the alternative? Like a higher unemployment rate with really good benefits? Like I don't think that's that great of an alternative. Wouldn't you rather have these people at least in the workforce? Oh, dude, that's a tough question. That is way <laughs> over my pay grade. I mean, I think it's pretty easy to identify that there's a lot of bullshit jobs out there, but is it fine? Yeah. I mean, everything's going fine, you know? We're all good. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a way harder question about what to do with it. Yeah, I don't know. All right, what's your next story? Okay, yeah, we're going to have a lot of Fang stuff today. So I guess there was a blog post on what Apple is apparently doing. Um, I think it's important, even if you don't invest in Fang and you get kind of bored, uh, bored of talking about Apple, Facebook, Amazon, stuff like that. It's always important to see what they're thinking of doing because, you know, stuff they invest in kind of builds on and other companies can get created on top of that, or at least how it's, that's been in the past, or they can disrupt other businesses. So according to an independent blogger, and this isn't the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg, and it's really just, I don't know, it's a, it's not like a big report, so take it with a grain of salt. 
but it is someone who is connected within the tech industry. They said that Apple has the um, next step computing ambitions that are drastically beyond what any of us are imagining. So for context, it is reported Apple has contributed $40 billion in R&D to these new computing projects over the past decade. First iterations you probably think about are the watch and AirPods. And the blogger calls this the fourth paradigm shift for Apple after the personal computer, GUI, um, and the phone, iPhone, obviously, you know, the big one over the last decade. So the core prediction he has after talking with any, I think he says it's hundreds, but whatever, he talked to a lot of people within the company, is that Apple's ambitions are not just for AR and VR, but for a big push to build a 3D map of the entire world which sounds audacious, but, and it's also tough to discuss, but what, if, if they build this stuff and they, they create, you know, AR, VR glasses, they do this 3D map that basically you can have on at all times with, in conjunction with your AR glasses, and if they bring that mainstream, how could that, like, who could that benefit, and who would it hurt? Do you have any thoughts? Mm. I can kind of go first. I think it would hurt slightly Google, although they probably would have, you know, they'd still have the lock-in with the Android ecosystem and stuff like that. I think it would hurt Facebook and their AR and VR ambitions, and I think it would help. Yeah, I think it would hurt Oculus probably maybe the most. I think it would help. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it would help the gaming industry, the video game industry as a whole. I think the entertainment part of that would just continue to grow and grow. Yeah, I agree. And it's just, but, okay, like AR glasses sound like a really novel novel concept and we've kind of been saying this for probably two years now but i just yeah and he said it, it he said it's not going to come out for a while like, yeah i hesitate until to to think it's going to be introduced soon and then i also hesitate to think it's going to be going to have a useful iteration yeah, yeah. until is it gonna is it gonna be like the iphone and become a every you know everyone uses it you know yeah I mean? it's great theoretically but uh i just I'm resistant to the idea that it's going to yeah. be like uh, everyone's going to be wearing them within five years. Well, here, yes, I think that's a good point because here's what I always think about when these bloggers and stuff, and it's fun to think about and read about, but whenever they predict the new paradigms and stuff like that, if you remember in 2017, it seemed like the consensus was was that voice technology was going to be the new platform and take over the world. Would you agree on that? Yeah, people, it, yeah, definitely. It, it, I mean, obviously, Amazon sold a lot of Alexa devices, but has it really changed the world? I don't think so. The smart home stuff, eh, you know, people are like, eh, I don't really need it, you know? Eh, it's fine, you know? Yeah, it's a lot of, like, uh, friction to problems that don't even exist. For example, yeah. like Alexa, for me, the only time you use Alexa is when you're, like, using it for the novelty of using it, not, like... Not like to serve a function. Yeah. I get like, oh, play some, maybe play some music. Maybe that yeah. is the most useful feature. That's it's just true. like, oh, it can turn on your TV. Well, so can your remote. Like, I don't. If you're doing it, you're doing it just to, like prove a point. Like, oh, look how connected my home is. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think we anchor. I guess if that's the proper term, maybe not. Um, I always know what those Kahneman and whatever the behavioral terms, I always say one, but I just end up describing it because I'm not really sure which ones fit which category. Uh, but I think anchoring to what the success of the iPhone and how much, and smartphones or whatever, and how much that changed 
you know, people's lives and thinking the next big tech thing or whatever comes out, even if it's not from Fang, it's from another company, thinking that is going to have the same monumental effect as smartphones is probably too optimistic or maybe yeah. too aggressive, something like that. That's kind of where I sit on it. But, it, yeah, you know, it'll be interesting to see what they do. Stuff like that. Agreed. All right. Uh, that's your last story, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's going to do it. Thanks again to Rick Munares for coming on. Uh, am I missing anything? We should have some good interviews coming up. We have a that's CEO true. of a company uh, based in Europe, hopefully, mm. coming up. We got some good um, – I think we have a journalist coming on and some good investors. So sneak peek yeah. on that. All right. Uh, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so investors may have uh, positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.